Hello, this is the Surviving Healthcare Podcast with Robert Yoho. I'm a retired physician, and I have the pleasure of having Scott Scherer here. That's how you pronounce your name, correct? Shera. Shera. And Scott had the misfortune to get run over by the hospital COVID policies, and her, his young, precious daughter uh, died, it sounds like, as a result of what's going on in the hospital medicine these days. And so, Scott, without further ado, tell me about yourself for a moment. How old are you? What do you do for a living? And then go ahead and tell us about your story with Grace and your background. Sounds good. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so my, just a little bit about myself, I'll, uh, I'll be 59 next week and uh, I'm Grace's dad. Uh, we had Grace when we were 39 years old, my wife and I. Anyway, the, uh, so I, I'm a business owner. Uh, thankfully, the business is mature and I've been investing a lot of time training my guys. So they're running it now because I've been working on Grace's case about six days a week. And before that, my background, I've owned a business over 30 years, but the business I have now is completely different. It's we're in pond management before, way back early on, I owned a CPA firm and that training as a CPA is really why I can present this, this story because I have personally about 500 hours of research in Grace's story and the CPA background allowed me to, to drill things down and create audit trails even when I was in the hospital with Grace. So Grace is, um, she, was, she was a great kid. She was 19 years old. Uh, Grace had Down syndrome. And if you've never met a Down syndrome person before, uh, Grace exemplified exactly what you, you know if you've met one, which they just love everybody. And Grace, Grace did that. Uh, she, uh, she was very high functioning. My wife taught her how to read and write. I taught her how to drive a car. Uh, she played violin. She played uh, violin at my daughter Jess's wedding, which is pretty neat. Um, and she was, uh, she was a prankster, a jokester. She, she saw things through a lens of humor, which was, it was, it was really fantastic. You know, she was, she was a laugh a minute. She, uh, one story I like to tell is she went deer hunting with me. And, and one time in the deer stand, she said, dad, I came up with a joke. You know, it's kind of boring sitting there. And, and so I said, well, what's your joke, Grace? And you got to consider a Down syndrome girl made this joke up from scratch. And she said, where do bees go to the bathroom? I said, I don't know. Where do they go to the bathroom? And she said, the BP station. Oh, I just, but that was her. She, was, she just connected the dots. She was so smart. And uh, she had a relationship with God that was second to none. She, uh, and just to give you that perspective, I have on my laptop a little note that Grace wrote to me that says, love you, earthly dad. She called me earthly dad. So she had a sense of, of what the real priority is in life. And it was, it was a, God gave us a wonderful gift uh, to, to have her on loan for 19 years. So anyway, that's Grace and that's me. Uh, now jumping into the story, uh, we were on the frontline doctor's uh, protocol and we were we had everything at home, so we just were expecting COVID to eventually hit. The idea that everybody in the country is going to get it, I thought, well, that's probably true. And so we had everything at home. And Grace, 
Cindy, my wife, and I all, all got COVID about the same time, uh, which was in October of, of 2021. So <clears throat> what happened specifically, so Grace, we just assumed anytime there's a sniffle, it's COVID, just so we're prepared. So around September 28th, Grace got a sniffle. Uh, she had already been on zinc, vitamin D, vitamin C, um, but then we, got her on, then we got her on ivermectin right away. And we just really never thought anything of it. We thought we'd walk through COVID, no problem. And I, <clears throat> my wife had the most severe symptoms, but her oxygen never got down below 95%. Grace and, Grace and me, we, we both dropped into the 80s and... I ended up in the hospital three days after Grace died, and I went in at 84% when we were uh, dealing with Grace on October 6th. She was in the high, the high 80s, and, um, and so she, I was worse than Grace, but you know, afterward, you wonder, why did we end up having oxygen problems? And we put a link on Grace's website to Dr. Chetty's research. He's from South Africa, and he, he had roughly 8,000 COVID patients at the time when I studied his research was, which was about a month after Grace died. And he discerned through that research that there's a small percentage of the population that has a propensity to clot and produce inflammation, which I knew I had both of those prior to getting COVID. And so Grace would have inherited those. He called it a genetic disposition. And so Grace would have inherited those from me, which explains why her and I ended up in the hospital, but my wife didn't. And just so you know, ending up in the hospital, you know, one of the reasons we're sharing this message is so that other people don't make the same mistake. And so even though Grace ended up in the hospital, if I would have known then what I know today, she would definitely not have ended up in the hospital. And it, based on my own experience in the hospital, which I was in a, a non-COVID hospital, meaning one that didn't buy into the government protocol versus Grace was in one that did. And they turned me around in 24 hours versus they killed Grace. So if, if we would have known then what I know today, we would have still went to the emergency room, but Grace would have went home with a prescription for oxygen and a steroid and would be alive today. And I am 100% confident of that based on my own experience in the hospital. So then we jump into the hospital stay. Um, what happened is on October 6th, we went to the emergency room they recommended the hospital's admission and immediately we met with resistance. And, and it happened because I said, well, then I'll be staying with her. And the hospital nurse said, well, you can't do that. I said, what's the reason? And she said, well, because we don't allow visitors on the COVID wing. And so I said, well, then I'll be taking Grace home. And after two hours of deliberation, they came back and said, we decided you can stay. And so, of course, in hindsight, you wish they would have said, well, then take her home. But, you know, because Grace, again, would have been alive today. Yeah, I, I missed that little bugger terribly. Uh, so we waited about 10 hours then in the emergency room for a room to open up. And so we, we got into her eventual room at about midnight on October 7th. The 7th was a fairly normal day other than toward the end of the day, uh, they had put Grace on what's called a high flow cannula. So a cannula is the thing that, you know, that goes up your nose and around your ears, but this is a high flow cannula, which means it's shooting air up your nose at about 40 miles an hour. 
And Grace got pretty frustrated with that so much so that I had to wrestle with her a bit to get her to accept, you know, we gotta, we gotta deal with this oxygen, Grace, because, you know, I, in my mind, at least at that time, I thought oxygen was paramount. After the fact, I realized that through Dr. Chetty's research mainly, but then we had a doctor help us go through the records after Grace died and realized that she probably only needed a regular cannula at most. Grace was already on a CPAP at home and I had her CPAP machine in the hospital. And the research that we had showed that, that it was really wrong to put her on a high flow cannula, which ended up leading to a BiPAP because of Grace's frustration with the high flow cannula, which I don't blame her. You know, but as the dad in the room at that time, I'm thinking the oxygen is an emergency. And so I worked on and off with these nurses, two nurses helped and uh, they were great assets at that point. And um, they were thankful that I was willing to help because, you know, ultimately we got Grace situated with a BiPAP then. And at the end of it, just typical Grace, she knew she was, was, um, was frustrated and she just gave me a hug and said, sorry, dad. You know, she, she just was a great kid, you know, like, but like any kid and any adult, you have your moments. So anyway, the, uh, so the, the first day, October 7th, outside of that, it was just, I thought Grace and I were on a mini vacation. I thought we're going to be in the hospital three, four days and we're just going to goof off. Uh, so we did. I mean, we just, it was a nice time up until the, the oxygen situation at the end. But then now we start getting into things that were, it really makes you start questioning. Uh, and one of the things that, that should come out of this interview when people hear it, there is a believability factor. So as I get into the details, you'll think, man, this story is too out there. But what I did to combat that was to post all of my research on Grace's website, which is ouramazinggrace.net. And there's a tab called the tragedy. And you'll see, it's not literally all of the research because I've got several hundred hours, but it, it hits the, the main points that I'm going to talk about in this interview. So then you look at them yourself and look at the sources that I have for the data, and then you can decide yourself if, if this, what I'm telling you, makes sense. But ultimately, if you do decide this makes sense, now you have an obligation to educate yourself because all of us will probably end in the, up in the hospital at some point in the future. And if you end up with a, in a hospital that was bought, and I'm using bought in quotes, you know, bought by the government, um, they're not your friend. And you got to know that before you are in an emergency room situation, because once you're in the emergency room and you check in, I mean, it's too late. You've got to know who the good hospitals are and the bad hospitals are well in advance of having an ambulance ride to the hospital. So on October 8th, uh, a doctor came in at eight o'clock in the morning and said, you're gonna have to put Grace on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, well, what is that based on? Well, at this point, I did not know ventilators were the kiss of death. And to my surprise, he told me a good chunk of the truth. And what he, so I asked him, what's the prognosis with the ventilator? He said about 20% of the people who are on a ventilator walk out alive. <laughs> Subsequently, I found out that it's only about 15%. And of the 15% who walk out alive, most of them die in the first year because of damage done to the lung. And what got me clued in on this is his 
his uh, nurse that was attending started crying. And I asked her what's going on. And she has a daughter named Grace. And she knew that if I made that decision, Grace was going to die. Grace is still talking at this point. Absolutely. Other than it's hard for her to talk with the BiPAP mask yeah. on. But yeah, she was great. Anyway, so I, I challenged the doctor back and, and he, he said, so I said, what is it based on your recommendation? And he said it was based on the blood gas draw that was done the night before. Yeah, and a blood gas is a, a specific draw they do to produce certain results out of a certain vein, which I'm, you're obviously aware of. And so there's nothing wrong with doing a blood gas draw, but he's, when I asked him what time he said about 1130, I said, well, I don't think that number is objective because I told him the story about us wrestling with Grace on and off for two, three hours during the window right up before that. And in fact, Grace's blood pressure was at 235 over 135 and her heart rate was 150 beats a minute. And so then I said, I, I want you to retake the blood gas draw so we have objective information. And he did. And of course, Grace was fine. But what's going on? So this, this ventilator paradigm, I, I want to just chase that down so people get what, what's going on here. So when COVID first started, I think President Trump unknowingly uh, was really pushing ventilators. And regardless of it was if he knew or not, it, it was a convincing story that we have a ventilator shortage. And so then the country started producing ventilators through factories, et cetera. So people have a ventilator paradigm that this is a tool to save people's lives. And it is not a tool to save people's lives. It is at times, not in COVID. COVID is not a place for ventilators. It has really no place in COVID whatsoever. I'm not a doctor, but I now that I've researched it, I would say that I probably know more than 90% of the doctors who are practicing now relative to what's going on with COVID. And, you know, I'll go on record saying, you know, do not do this at any cost. There's other, there's other things you should be doing. And if they're recommending a ventilator, it's, it's a hospital that's been bought. And it's very easily proven because what happens is in the COVID bonus payments that hospitals receive, the day you go on a ventilator, they get a $39,000 bonus. And it's substantially worse than that because now you're classified as an ICU patient, which they get another bonus for. They put you on a, a sedation drug, so they get another bonus for that. But way more important than, than that is the average time somebody's on a ventilator is 22 days. So when you start adding up the bonuses along with the revenue that they get for the patient stay, it approximates $300,000 that the hospital receives if the family decides to put Uncle Joe on a ventilator. And with, in Grace's case, so that was the first time that he had what he considered facts to back up a ventilator. But subsequently, the doctors asked my wife and I four different times for a pre-authorization to put Grace on a ventilator just in case. And they framed it such that these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. So they wanted us to give them this pre-approval so they could throw a ventilator down Grace's throat anytime that they chose. Well, I mean, it's, it's a sickening thing because you know, the, the odds of survival are so low, the cash payment is so high. So they're incentivized to do this. And 
when you you go, you know, so remember we were in the room. That's that's what makes Grace's case even more unique than others. But most families that have bought into the ventilator paradigm, you know, the hospital's recommending, well, you, you know, your uncle has got low oxygen, which I'm going to explain here in a little bit. And so the only way that he's going to survive is with a ventilator. So they unknowingly approved this ventilator. And so now you have a cash bonus to the hospital. Uh, you have immunity from liability. So once this all comes out, this is all going to shake out. You know, there people are going to all know there's going to be big lawsuits going on, but they have immunity from liability under the CARES Act. And then the third leg of the stool is they have a shroud of secrecy because people aren't in the room. So, I mean, they, they have you um, really every which way that you can't, you can't, uh, you really can't fight them. But they, even worse than that, they did a whole education process to dumb down our population for two decades. So, I mean, so we have the dumbest population on the face of the earth and they just believe anything that, that the government and the medical profession tell them. Well, they're, they're burning down the confidence that has been built in the medical profession over decades, if not millennia. And basically in two years or three years or four years, this, this is just getting uh, incinerated. Well, I, I agree. I, you know, I wish the confidence would be torn down right to zero. Yeah. You, know, you and I are doing this podcast, hoping to tear the confidence down further. But I mean, there's still, there's still, uh, uh, I think the lion's share of people are still uneducated. You know, they're telling them to get their 15th booster and no problem. Yeah. Just sign right, let take me right in. Can I drive through? Can I take it, you know, can I take it orally? What can I do? Like you know, anything that you tell me to do, I'll just do. I'm so stupid. You know, that's, I hate to be that blunt, but I mean, that is, I don't, incredible. I don't get it. It's incredible. So, you know, when I want to just dive into the next day, which is October 9th. So we already went through the 7th, the 8th. The high point on the ninth. Now I'm going to talk to you about about oxygen, because they have a way to arbitrarily low lower oxygen, and I'm going to show you that right now in in what I'm going to tell you with what happened to Grace. So Grace was woke up hungry. Um, you know, she's got this crazy BiPAP mask on, so she's trying to tell me she's hungry. I can't understand her, so she starts signing, and so then. Uh, you know, I said, yeah, I figured out she's hungry. So we order food and I start feeding her and a nurse comes running in and says, you can't do that. I said, well, why can't I do that? And she said, well, Grace's oxygen is only at 85%. And, you know, so she's saying, and I'm just going to go on this rabbit trail here for a minute. So what she's saying is that every time I pull the BiPAP mask off, it drops the oxygen level. Well, that's a whole nother situation when once grace had the bipap mask on the nursing staff and they actually did a very good job of this other than grace's last day they would they would come in and clean grace's mouth and wet it because everything dries out and so they were on the ball with that well, i watched how they did it and so they would pull the bipap mask off and put the high flow cannula on but they would turn the high flow cannula down to low pressure so it didn't bother grace so it just was on her, oxygen stayed fine and they cleaned her mouth out. So I said to this nurse, all we have to do to feed Grace, it's no problem. We just have to do what the nurses are doing when they, but they would not listen. They just said, well, the doctor said the, the high flow 
cannula has to be on at this high pressure. So it doesn't have to be. You know, it, it is the strangest thing. They just did not want, you know, they didn't want a dumb dad telling them anything. So anyway, back to the story. So that nurse comes running in and says, well, Grace's oxygen is only at 85%. And so then I started thinking about that. I thought, it cannot be. In the, in the emergency room, she just had a regular cannula on and she was in the high 90s. How can she have a BiPAP on and only be at 85? Cigarette, smoker, cigarette smokers live at 85. Some of them, you know, the people with lung disease that live at 85 and they're fine for years. I didn't even know that. That would have been yeah. nice to have in my back pocket at that time. But what I did have in my back pocket was I had suspected and they told me I was going to get COVID while I'm in the room with Grace. So I had all of my COVID materials in the room, which included my own oxygen saturation finger meter. So I put it on Grace and it read 95%. So I called the nurse back in. And I asked if my finger meter was accurate. And she said, yes, it is. So I said, you know, somewhat facetiously, not realizing what the reality truly is in that hospital setting. But I said, why is my $50 meter more accurate than your $50,000 machine? And she said, because the leads get sweaty. I said, well, if that's a known fact, why don't you just change the leads out every three or four hours or whatever it takes so that we can have an accurate reading since this is the primary tool you're using to manage my daughter's care. And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful you caught this. And we've, you know, so then you get wise to oxygen. I'm testing Grace's oxygen regularly. My daughter, Jessica, became a replacement advocate, which you'll hear why in a, in a minute. And <clears throat> ultimately, you know, the oxygen differential between our meter and the hospital's meters was oftentimes substantial. You know, in this case, it was 10 points. On Grace's last day, it was almost 50 point difference. And so you think, well, what's the incentive for the hospital to have false oxygen readings? We'll go back to Uncle Joe again. So now you have a family that's a little wiser than normal. They get the, all the records and that the hospital has an audit trail to fit exactly why Uncle Joe needed a ventilator because they, they have faulty equipment. You know, they have no incentive to have accurate numbers because they're, they, they're all in on this. They don't really, they, they start with a premise. It's so negative. They start with a premise that you're lucky to get out of there alive. That was the attitude of this hospital versus the hospital that I stayed in. It was a completely different attitude. And I'll just share one example to show you how different it was. So in Grace's, Grace's hospital, she died at, they were, they said multiple times, you know, we've been doing this for two years. We're given 110%. And, and so when I started writing my notes from the hospital stay, so I had taken notes while I was in the, in the room, but then I started transcribing them the day after I got kicked out and I titled, titled my notes 110% because that was the attitude. They really had an aloof attitude. The hospital that I stayed in, I just about died the first night. The next morning, the nurse came in. And by the way, they asked me, how would you like your care to proceed? When I checked in, I said, I don't want to be bothered unless I buzzed you. So they made all of the alarms ring out in the nurse's station versus the room. And they never came in to check, check on me until I buzzed them because my oxygen dropped so low the first night. So anyway, the next day, the nurse came in with a little container of pills. And she said, I'd like to go through the, the pill regimen with you. I said, so I said, well, what do you have in there? 
and she said, I have a probiotic, a multivitamin, vitamin D, uh, vitamin E, and fish oil. I said, you got to be kidding me. You guys don't believe in that stuff. And she said, well, we do here. And I actually had a sense I was going to live, even though, I mean, I had the worst night of my life that first night. Um, I mean, what a difference in, in attitude where you have a hospital that's trying to get you to live versus another one that just thinks, well, the, the you know, it's, everybody ends in death here. So we're just here to, to milk this system. So just to stop for one second, I'm going to just tell the listeners that this experience that Scott and his baby bear had is not, is not a singular. It's not unusual. This, this sort of thing has been reported all around America because of these perverse incentives. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, Scott. No, I want you to. That's, that's fantastic. I, I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, anyway, then October 10th is a fairly significant day. I don't want to dwell on it, but it was a Saturday, or it was a Sunday, which is an interesting coincidence or non-coincidence, but seven o'clock in the morning, the head nurse came in with an armed guard and said, you need to leave immediately. It's very hard for me to talk through this because uh, at the end of this, well, you'll, you'll see why. Anyway, so I, I said, well, what is that based on? And she said, well, three things. Number one is you're shutting off the alarms at night. And so I defended that because I said, well, it's be, that's because I had the nurses train me how to shut the alarms off. Of course, the non-essential ones, because they, would, they were going off you know, 20, 30 times a night. And many times it would take 20, 25 minutes for somebody to come in and shut it off. So I had them train me how to do it. And then the second thing, which was, you know, they're, they buried this reason, but, you know, in their official response, they didn't even claim this, but fortunately it's in the doctor's records and that, that substantiates what I'm saying. But she said the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. So, I mean, obviously you know why based on I'm challenging things. And then third, she said, which this is laughable. She said, we suspect you have COVID. And, you know, so I said, well, you know, no kidding. You guys are the ones who told me I was going to get COVID. You know, and if honestly, if that was their reason, why didn't they test me for COVID? Or why didn't they even ask? I had tested myself at one o'clock in the afternoon the first day, and I tested positive. I tested myself because I had a fever. It's absurd. Scott, do you have health care? Did you have health care power of attorney for your daughter? My wife did. So I, Your wife did. Only one person can have it at a time, yeah, and she I see. she could not be in the hospital at that time because she yeah. had COVID. And so when I got kicked out, she couldn't take my place because she had COVID yet. And so my daughter Jessica became the replacement. Advocate. So right here, when they tried to kick you out, she still had Sats in the '90s with oxygen, and she was talking. Absolutely. In fact, I mean, this is the hardest. You know, my wife at you know the first uh, about the first month, two months after Grace died, I woke up three nights a week, just replaying this. Why didn't I take her with me? Because we never had left Grace alone. This is the first time we left her alone. You know, and I, when I left, I gave her a hug. And uh, You don't acquire sophistication like this without experiences like this. Well, yeah, I mean, I wish I'd love to get sophisticated a different way because, you know, that's the last, you know, I gave Grace a hug and, and a kiss and she hugged me back. And, you know, it's the last time I saw her alive. Physically, I mean, we watched her die on FaceTime, which you're gonna, you're gonna hear. I mean, this it's sickening. I mean, it was it was tough, you know. So the armed guard walked me out to my truck, 
And uh, he, you know, he watched this whole exchange and he just said, Scott, you got to take this to a higher level. He knew, he knew what the deal was. So now this was a Sunday. Thankfully, Grace's special needs attorney was available. I texted her and we, then we got on a phone call together and figured out, well, how are we going to get a replacement advocate in? Because the hospital's official policies, you can't have anybody in there. But I mean, Grace needed an advocate and she had a right to an advocate under the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, but you know, these, these laws don't mean anything to when, when, a, when these systems and, and uh, especially the liberal philosophy is the end justifies the means. I mean, they can do anything and you, know, you, you have the law to stand on, but you don't win the court case till two years later and the dirty deed has already been done. But anyway, thankfully we were only without an advocate for 44 hours. But you know, during that, they actually started a sedation drug on October 9th when I was still in the room called Presidex. And if you look up the package insert for Presidex, which we have it on Grace's website, you'll see that the that drug, which is a sedation drug, is only supposed to be used for 24 hours. And the nurses who are in the know say it's an anesthesia drug. And in fact, it's only supposed to be used for three hours max. So they had Grace on this for four days before her last day. We got introduced to Tom Renz, who's been a, a real blessing for us. And he referred us to a medical malpractice nurse who concluded after looking at the records that they chemically restrained Grace with Presidex. What happens, so there's two things that I wanna point out relative to this drug. It's, it, you know, remdesivir gets all the press, but Presidex shouldn't get equal press or even more because what's going on is that Grace never needed to be sedated, but once they put, somebody on a sedation drug, they get an ICU bonus. The room is classified now as ICU. Grace never moved rooms. Her care <laughs> never changed, but the bill changed. And I know this as a fact because I requested the invoice that the hospital sent to Medicaid and it shows exactly, you know, so they, they take out the room charge and then add in the higher room charge for the ICU room. But way more important than the money they receive is that your loved one, once they're on a sedation drug and you want to take them home, it's called against medical advice. So now you can't take them home without signing off that you're responsible for them. So now if that loved one dies under your watch, you're responsible. Of course, I didn't know any of this at the time and I could care less. I would have signed anything if I would have just thought through taking her home at that time. I should have taken her with me on October on October 10th when I was kicked out. But anyway, back to the timeline of the story. So I just wanna jump into October 12th. This is the day before Grace died. She died on the 13th. Grace had a, uh, another good day. The two sisters, you know, Grace and my daughter, just bonded night. You know, they, they watched a movie and um, ultimately, Jess uh, reported Grace's oxygen overnight was at 98, 99% the entire night. And right before Grace went to bed, she, she sat up in bed and through the BiPAP, Jess had called her two boys, Grace's nephews, and Grace sat up and hollered, hi boys, right through the BiPAP loud, you know, 
you know, so if she wasn't doing well, she couldn't have done that. The next morning, the doctor called us at roughly eight o'clock and he, the purpose of his call was twofold. They, he wanted to know if we would give them a pre-authorization for the ventilator again. And you can't make this up. He had called the night before wondering about this. This Remember, this was the fourth time after they told us that they wanted her on a ventilator for this pre-authorization. And we said no again. I believe, so now we're getting into a little speculation. I believe they used that as their reasoning to take Grace out. And I'll connect the dots at the end. So the second thing that he said during that phone call is, since Grace had such a good day yesterday, I think we should put in a feeding tube. So remember, why did she need a feeding tube? Well, she was malnutrition because they wouldn't let her let us feed her. And the nurses only gave her a couple protein shakes. And she should have been fed the whole time. There's absolutely no reason she couldn't have been fed. So this ends up coming back to haunt us when we go through the details of her last day. So now Jessica thought, well, she's going to be in there for three, four days. So she said to the nurse, I'm going to take a shower. When I was in the room, they insisted I not leave the room. There's a shower and toilet right in the room. So I took a shower in the room. They insisted Jessica leave. So she really didn't think anything of it. I mean, you trust the white coat. You know, so a message here is do not trust the white coat. If their hospital is bought into the government protocols, and this has nothing to do with COVID. There's a lot bigger agenda going on here, folks, which I'll explain. But if they bought into following the government protocol for health, um, You'll, you'll see why I say that when you run. And, you know, but we still trusted the white coat. So Jessica goes home and takes a shower. She's back inside of an hour. When she gets back, she overhears two doctors and a nurse in the hallway say, the family is not going to like this. So she says, what are they going to like? And they said, we had to restrain Grace while you're gone, which means strap her down to the bed. And so she said, what's the reason? And they said, because she wanted to get out of the bed and go to the bathroom. So this was very hard for me to talk about on air at the beginning, but and one of the attorneys that we're working with said to me, Scott, you think that you would have been strapped down to the bed if you wanted to go to the bathroom? I said, no, I don't think I would have been. So it dawned on me, they did this because Grace had Down syndrome. And so that weekend, I, uh, God got me up at about three o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning. And I went through the, all the records again. So we had 22 doctor's reports uh, from the seven days Grace was in the hospital. Every time a doctor comes in the room, he's got to write a summary report. So I went through every report. They referenced the fact that in 22 reports, they referenced that Grace had Down syndrome 36 different times. So think through that. Is that necessary? That's like saying, if you and I are in the, you know, they're describing us. Are they going to say white male 36 different times? Or does it change? You know, do they just need to say that once and then it's, it's over? I mean, it seems insane. Um, and, you know, when you, you look at this in the concept of how Down syndrome people are treated, 67% of Down syndrome people are aborted. And, you know, so what's the reason? I mean, they're testing for it ahead of time because they're recommending parents abort 
their child if they have any abnormality. And, you know, Down syndrome is considered an abnormality. And I would consider it just the opposite, you know, and I would say Grace was way more normal than me. Um, anyway, now you get in, so now they strap Grace down. They use that as an excuse then to increase the sedation drug. Remember, she's already been on the sedation drug for four days. Well, shortly after the strapping down, now comes the feeding tube. One of the nurses said to the, there's a 14 year ICU nurse that was in charge this day and, and really made sure that Grace was not gonna survive. Anyway, the attending nurse said to the 14 year ICU nurse, shouldn't we wait for Grace's statistics to rebound before we do the feeding tube? And she said, no, we're gonna do it now. So they did that. Then at 10.48... Did they put the head of the bed up after they did the feeding tube? I can't answer that because Jessica was in the room. Right. So I don't know. I know what... Right because after there, there is high risk for aspiration if they don't. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. Well, they sent in an x-ray uh, team to see if, if they hit the mark with where it's supposed to end up. But, you know, Grace, Grace got... You know, they sedated her now at max dose. And she was... So Jessica's testimony as at 1048 in the morning that's when they did max dose of Prestidex. grace was out of it the rest of the day and at 1056 so we know this now we didn't know this is the uh, only the second time i've told this the first time was this morning in a in an interview that i had because it's new information at 1056 the doctor put a dnr order on grace at wow. 1125 they gave her a dose of lorazepam which is an anxiety med just think about how stupid that is. She's already out. Lorazepam combines, it has a synergistic effect with opioids or an anesthetic drug like that to produce a much, much greater effect. It's a multiplied effect for, on the respiration. It's right on. Out. It is a it is a multiplied effect. And it's it's uh, it even gets worse than that. So now we get into starting at 5, 546 p.m. They gave her another dose of lorazepam. At 5:49, another dose. Three minutes later, and at 6:15, morphine as an IV push. Yeah, that's a very I mean, potent combination. Many anesthesiologists have seen their patients stop breathing with that, and some have had their patients die because they couldn't resuscitate them. Well, that's in fact what happened with Grace. So I mean, Jessica sensed Grace getting cold, and so I don't know how many minutes after that she went out in the hall and got this 14-year ICU nurse and said, can you take a temperature on Grace? She's cold, and the nurse says that's normal. Well, it's not normal at all. It's normal if you want to kill somebody. And the package insert for morphine, which, I mean, adds to just what you said, but I mean, it lays it out so specifically. It's the most damning document we have in the arsenal. And it's on Grace's website. And it says to not combine those drugs because of the synergetic effect. And it causes death when you do. When, and when you combine have, them, you have to have an ICU specialist or anesthesia in the room. You know, someone who well, knows how to take care of the airway. They can't do it and walk out. If you do it and walk out, that's negligence. You know, or, They did do it and walk out. Or maybe, in this case, homicide. Yep, they did do it and walk out. I mean, the, the, again, the package insert says they have just what you said. They're supposed to be bedside with the reversal drug and monitor the patient. They didn't do that. So they, instead of doing anything, they gave Jessica a blanket. Now at 7.20, Jessica called us on a FaceTime call. So my wife, Cindy, and I are on the call and Jessica's panicking. And she said, Dad, Grace's numbers are dropping like crazy. 
I said, get the nurses in. She said, I've been trying. They won't come in the room. She estimated 30 nurses in the hallway at this time because of shift change. So my wife and I start screaming, save our daughter. They holler back to us. She's DNR. Do not resuscitate. This is the first we knew she's DNR. So we holler back. She's not DNR. Save our daughter. All of this is in violation of state statute relative to DNR. Every state has similar statutes. We're in Wisconsin. You can look up the state statutes. We got them posted on Grace's website. And you'll see that there's, <clears throat> there's eight statutes that apply to this situation. They violated seven and a half of them. The only thing that they didn't violate is that the doctor's supposed to put the DNR order on the computer. But that is step five in the process. There's four steps before, which require either the patient or the patient power of attorney to sign the DNR order which of course we didn't approve or sign a DNR order. They put it on Grace on their own. So, so we, Grace or Jessica ran out in the hallway then wondering what's going on. And a nurse read off the computer that the doctor put a DNR order in and they couldn't do anything about it. So we, we watched Grace die on FaceTime at 727. Oh my God. And if it couldn't get worse, it, it technically does. So we found out after the fact that, and not, I mean, Jessica knew live because she was there, but she told us after the fact that there was an armed guard posted outside the room. And just so your audience knows that armed guard wasn't just a passerby, Jessica crawled in Grace's bed and laid with her for 20 minutes after she died. And that armed guard stood outside the nurse's window and watched her the whole day. How we got wise to all of this. So now I drove my wife to the hospital. I had to stay in the truck because I had COVID. And her and Jessica cleaned Grace up. Our pastor met us there and the funeral director. And after everything was done, the pastor walked Jessica, or excuse me, walked Cindy out in a wheelchair. One of the nurses had Grace's belongings and she leaned down to Cindy and said, me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today. So that, it led to, I ended up in the hospital then three days later. Um, I got down to 149 pounds. It took quite a while to rebound, but ultimately Grace's funeral was on the 29th of October. I sent in the records request on the 30th and I started to get well enough that we got the records three days or four days later, started going through them all with the doctor. And um, by the I think it was the seventh or so. I have to look back on my notes. We concluded, we had, we had summarized everything, started assembling everything and concluded that they killed her. So then on November 8th, I sent a request to the hospital via their patient relations, via email, requesting a meeting with the hospital CEO and the doctor. And we sent them all of the research. You know, this sounds dumb, I know, to the average person, but I... I believe in my biblical responsibility to, to meet with the person who's offended me and, and give them everything. So you don't, you're not dropping a bomb on them when a meeting happens. So we did all that and they sent us back an email on December 2nd and said, they're not going to meet with us. They're going to send a letter instead. So now we start getting into the why, because on December 2nd, once they did that, I thought, now I have the green light to, to share this story. So that day I sent out a um, couple paragraph summary to Fox News and Newsmax. And then I sent a complaint 
to the licensing department that licenses physicians and the licensing department that licenses hospitals in the state of Wisconsin. And Newsmax, Fox never got back to us. Uh, Newsmax called a week later and that's how it all started. And, you know, they, it, it's, it's not funny, but I mean, you know, I don't have any experience. <laughs> and so then the lady asked, you know, she's screening me basically, do you, you know, are you comfortable being on live TV? And you know, of course I'm not comfortable, I don't know anything. And that you, they don't tell you the questions, and you know, so it was, it was a, you know, they had me on live TV December thirteenth, and thankfully, it, uh, God kept me calm enough to answer the questions live, and that got this whole snowball going, and now we've been on, you know, sixty or so uh, TV and radio appearances just because of uh, that first one. Well, you know, then we we got the first. Uh, response back from the licensing board for physicians. And you can't make this up. Uh, I'm just gonna read it because it, it's so powerful to read it. So this is how, you know, so you, we got this letter in the mail, so I know who it's from, you know, I open it up thinking, wow, you know, they're going to take this physician's license away for, you know, either using this combination of meds or putting a DNR order without our permission. I, if you look at Grace's website, you'll see I'm detail-oriented. I researched all this. I gave them everything. And this is what they write back. So I, I, I was shocked. But then I started connecting the dots as to what's really going on. So at first, the research was about Grace's case. Now it's delved into what is really going on. You know, there's, there's quite a lot going on, folks, that you know, the average person is not aware of. And I'm just an average dad. I mean, you got to consider just an average dad has connected the dots with what's going on. You know, there's alternative media, which of course you're part of. And I encourage people, you know, start looking at alternative media. Don't look at even Fox and Newsmax are not, you know, they do a better job than, than the alphabet stations, but they still aren't, they're still part of it. And you can prove it because just watch the commercials in between the, the, the hosts and they're advertising vaccines. You know, why are they Pfizer, advertising Pfizer vaccines? sponsors everybody. Exactly. Exactly. Incredible. So, I mean, yeah. you, you've got to get objective information. And what I'm telling you, I'm going to read this right out of the letter. So this is dated January 20th. This letter is on the website. It's from the Wisconsin Department of Safety and Professional Services. It says the details of the complaint were reviewed and evaluated by a screening panel made up of members of the regulatory authority for the profession and or a department attorney. So just think about that. Who is the team that reviewed these records? It's all people that are, that are, they didn't get any outsiders. Wouldn't somebody like you or, you know, an intensivist, you know, wouldn't you have outsiders take a look at what's going on? But no, they only had insiders review the records. Then based on the review and evaluation of the complaint and other materials, a decision has been made that the information presented Remember, take a look at Grace's website. You'll see the information presented. And I presented at least 50 more pages than what was on the website. Based on the information presented, your, the case does not warrant further investigation. And that's insane. I don't think anybody's ever provided as much information as I have. And it, it doesn't warrant. So, I mean, that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, you've got these hospitals have been bought by the government. And then when you appeal, 
you're appealing to the government. So now the in government is investigating the government. So of course, they're always going to be not guilty. They have to be not guilty. They're not going to turn themselves in. That was a boilerplate letter. And the licensing boards, uh, they also sent letters to each person in every state, just about, that they can't use ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, which are the two best drugs we have against COVID. I mean, it's yeah, just, absolutely. it's an unbelievable, it's hard to believe that they were all gotten to simultaneously, but somehow, somehow they were. Well, I, I agree 100%. And, you know, the plot thickened. So, you know, then I, I did a slide that's called the love of money. That's on Grace's website. And again, I, I give credit to where credit's due. And it's, it's to God. He got me up at three o'clock in the morning. Again, a lot of, night, a lot of mornings at three o'clock in the morning. And I found all of the information on that slide in five hours. It's, it's, when you look at it, you'll see that it's 20, 30 hours of research, but it was all done in five hours. And it was all available online. And what I found out on Grace's last day, and this is where it gets sickening. And of course, this is speculation now, folks, but you, know, you, you be the judge. <clears throat> so on Grace's last day, the hospital was at 100% capacity. And all of the local news stations were reporting that people are stacked up like cordwood in the ER. So remember when Grace and I were in the ER, we waited 10 hours for a room to open up. Translation, we waited 10 hours for somebody to die. So what do you think happened? So now I told you earlier that I, I asked for the, and received the bill that the hospital sent to Medicaid. They're only making $1,680 a day on Grace because we refused the, the treatment, you know, at that time, we didn't know we were refusing bonus treatments. This has all come up after the fact. So they're only making $1,680 a day on Grace. She is um, an undesirable. So she's a deplorable in Hillary Clinton's terminology, a useless eater, right? They're making $1,680 a day. The hospital's at full capacity. They have better paying patients in the ER stacked up like cordwood. So they have a 14-year ICU nurse that delivered the meds. How can you do that? I mean, you've got to know these meds are going to kill my daughter. Yeah, she knew. They, they, they put a DNR order on her. Yeah. I mean, it's too much evidence. So you start wondering what really happened here and how does this fit into the macro agenda? And you know, a lot of people are going to really think this is out there, but there is a macro agenda. And the, the elites in our world, and our government certainly has bought into it, they have an agenda called sustainability. And they attack that in two ways. Number one is through climate control. You know, so they, they want to just bankrupt the planet and focus on climate control. And, you know, it's, it's really insane, but I mean, it's going to be for people who who don't believe in God. You know, God's got this. You know, as to we're going to spend everything we can on climate control, and then the second is is health, and the you know, so they're disguising it as health. You know, we need to have. They're pushing for a, a, the WHO to to be in charge of all pandemics going forward. Well, what's the reason? So in the United States, the way it works is that. So what I'm going to share with you, I'm going to call genocide. So I think grace was taken out because there's genocide in the United States. That's my personal belief. Again, this is speculation, but remember I told you how the government is in on this and they bought the hospital and not literally, but I mean, they bought it through these bonus payments. 
So there's another piece of this puzzle. The average bonus payment is 100 grand to the hospital that has a COVID patient. The average patient that is on Medicaid and, and or Medicare also receives social, social security. And the average amount that patient receives is 32,000 a year. So by the government paying the hospital 100 grand, it has a three-year payback period on that person's death. And the hospital knows inside of five seconds who the Medicare and Medicaid patients are because they, they know what their insurance status is instantly. So now we can have the hospitals do the government's bidding. For years, they wanted to take out the elderly and the disabled, but now they have the tool to do it. So again, I'm speculating here, but I don't think I'm far off the mark, folks. And I, I'm, I'm saying this at my own personal risk at this point because I'm low-hanging fruit for people to take out. They're taking out people that are way higher status than I am for telling the truth. And I, I think that this, I think this is the truth. I'm going to stand on it. Well, I, I haven't gotten any threats yet, but I've been uh, expecting some because I, I've been working on this for years, you know, and trying to expose some of this stuff. Um, I, I think the, the motive is to destroy our system so they can quote build back better in other words they can right. they can so i i i hate to ascribe motive to individual players like your icu nurse who may just be an ignorant fool who just follows orders and the doctors in the same category in a lot of ways the hospital right. administrators are only interested in money these hospitals are all nonprofit. 75 percent of our nonprofit, which means they have very little oversight they, you know, strange to say the nonprofits have less board oversight and less uh, people watching them than the for-profits. So, um, you know, it's a touching story. And I want to assure my listeners that the, 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 the sequence of events was certainly not unique. The thing that was almost unique was you stayed involved with your uh, baby bear until the end and almost prevented it. So that's, you know, yeah, well, I mean, they did this right under our nose. And so, you know, we felt the obligation to share the story right away. I mean, so that's why we haven't, we have invested very little time pursuing a court case. And I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I really don't, it, it's not even on the radar screen yet because we're trying to just share the message. So, you know, we're doing that for two reasons. Number one is we don't want other people to die. You know, so that became just instant. My wife and I right away, I mean, we got to get this message out. Once we knew what it was, you know, once we knew they killed her and then we had the green light when the hospital didn't want to meet with us, we just thought we got to just share this message and we'll see, see what doors God opens. But then the other piece of it is, you know, we're hoping by sharing the message that, that people realize that they've been duped. Because if you can get your arms around what I'm telling you, you say, oh my gosh, I have been duped. Well then, where, what, what, is, what does that do? I mean, it, it's, God works in those ways to stir people's hearts, to start pursuing the truth. And you know, that, if that happens to you, the end is going to be that you, you find what God has done for mankind, if you're willing to keep pursuing truth, which you'll see that he sends his son Jesus for, for our salvation. Well, that's our hope. Strangely, the plaintiff's attorneys are somewhat the most powerful item in the whole uh, mix right now because they managed to bankrupt the only two pharmaceutical companies ever bankrupted by 
uh, attorneys and by the rule of law, which is uh, Purdue and incest, both of which were opioid producers and both of which have the blood of hundreds of thousands of people on their hands. But these um, vaccine manufacturers and the whole pandemic uh, fraud, they have the blood of millions of people on their hands and their liability protection, if we can maintain a rule of law, uh, does not shield them from uh, purposeful uh, murder, you know, homicide, genocide. It doesn't shield them from anything like that. And this thing, I mean, the, the unsophisticated camper like me would say definitely bring in the prosecutors if you can find anyone who's interested in it. But I think the thing that you're going to be able to do is get the case going and get more attention by using plaintiff's attorneys. And if you don't like the one you have, it's very easy to find another one because this is a big money case. And I'm not saying you're doing it for the money either. You want to create as much attention around this as you possibly can. And then if the the plaintiff's attorney case, if a civil suit gains traction, you should be able to find prosecutors who will pile on. The prosecutors are kind of, uh, you know, they're not real courageous personalities. And they frequently want to get a job in industry, that means pharma, after they get out of there. Uh, and their jobs aren't, aren't very lucrative. So I, I think that you should definitely pursue the uh, civil case as vigorously as you possibly can. Never forget that, you know, if you don't like your current attorney, there's always another uh, hundred of them around the corner. And you should be able to find somebody who's fairly uh, uh, large uh, scale to get interest in this. I mean, this is a, it's actually a class action lawsuit because the story has happened so many times. Right. And I, I've got a couple of people you might talk to. I don't know whether you like your current attorneys or whatever, but, uh, you know. Well, I mean, just because we're just at that stage, I'd love to get the yeah. the names, the names and contact information from you. I mean, I it, everything is on the table right now, and I I don't know exactly where it's going to go. But we have not, you know, we haven't had serious conversations with anybody to hire yet. Yeah, well, let me uh, let me pass this by. I mean, I'm I'm no great uh, referral source, and I certainly don't make money on any of this. And you have to bear in mind that if you go to an attorney and they re recommend another attorney it's legal for them to kick back money from the, the person who takes case to the referral source. That's only legal in real estate agents and, uh, and law, right? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's no, no surprise. Yeah. So for us, you know, we've publicly said we're not taking any money. That's not the goal, but one, I really would like to get Grace's death certificate changed to the truth. You know, that would be, that would really be nice, you know, to, have it be, you know, if it ends up being murder, to put murder, why not put murder on the death certificate? That would be, um, I mean, that that makes sense. If it's gross negligence, let's put that on. But don't put COVID on. She didn't die of COVID. Right. Yeah, this is a crazy story. And I, I haven't heard this in person yet before you. Scott, are there any other details that you need to share with us that are important? Uh, I think we we covered it. I mean, I, I uh, I just had a cup of coffee right before we went on. So that's, you know, so I'm, I got everything, you know, I'm all wired up. So it was, I thought it went well. You know, I thought you covered, you let me cover everything and you asked the appropriate questions. Do you have any other questions for me? I think I've got it, Scott. I really appreciate it. I'll call you on your phone when we get off. Thanks. All again. Right. Sounds good. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you.